Well, welcome everybody. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where we have yet another cherished opportunity to spend a little time together. Cherished from my perspective, certainly, and I can assure you that I do everything in my power as I prepare for this show during the course of the week, everything in my power to make certain that it becomes a cherished part of your week as well. Now, my dear listeners, there are two questions that people have been asking me lately, and I'd like to respond to both of them. The first one is that during the last podcast, I had spoken about the fact that we don't always know the things we need. It happens all the time, right? Uh, somebody goes to the doctor, is just, just not feeling on top of her game. She's thinking, um, you know, I'm just, just not, something's not quite right. And the, the doctor says, whoa, you know, after doing a, a full range of tests, uh, you are very deficient in a particular chemical, you know, some chemical or compound. And the patient says, what? I never even, I never even knew I needed that sort of stuff. And the the uh, doctor says, well, yes, you know, until a certain age, your body tends to synthesize it from this vitamin and this uh, nutrition. But after a certain age, you, you got to get it artificially. Uh, you just, oh, I never knew I needed that, right? This 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 happens all the time. And in the same way that this happens on a physical level, it happens on a spiritual level as well. And on a spiritual level, the way it manifests itself is that um, we human beings uh, exist, whether, whether you prefer to believe we were created this way or whether you prefer to believe that we just came about that way isn't really the point. The point is that we are here with certain b needs, certain basic needs, whether we know them or not. And uh, it has to do with nutrition, it has to do with water, it has to do with oxygen, it has to do with maintenance of body temperature. But there's one more that is not well known, and that is we have a need for faith. Now, there are other spiritual areas as well. And please understand, I'm really, really not wearing my rabbi hat while I'm talking now. I'm wearing my 5F Renewal Project hat. Uh, I'm telling you about the things you need in order to strengthen yourself, your family, your relationships, your resources, and uh, you know, we've spoken about the things you need. And I did last week, the things you need for a healthy body and the, the emphasis you need to place on that. I covered all that. But um, there are also other things. I've spoken about the spiritual need that everyone has um, to sacrifice. We all have a need to show that, even to show ourselves, but also other people, that we're about more than simply getting born and eating and uh, defecating and reproducing and dying. We all have a need to do more than that, and that has to do with sacrifice, people committing themselves to a cause that's bigger than themselves. 
And the cause might be, you know, get rid of the president. The cause might be uh, the, the cause of freedom and democracy. People clothe these terms uh, in all, they clothe these ideas in all kinds of terms. And we all, we all do that. Generally speaking, those of us who have as our primary commitment, commitment to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, um, we don't have the same need to find other causes that validate our existence. But uh, people who have liberated themselves from religious commitment uh, tend to be a little bit more susceptible to this tremendously vital and powerful human need of validating their existence by means of a cause. And so all of this is a reality, and, uh, and it's why I explain that you liberate yourself in real terms. You liberate yourself by generating a relationship with God. And, um, and why it is that even people, and, and just recently, a couple of days ago, I was talking to somebody who was driving me somewhere, and uh, the person said, you know, I really admire you. You know, you, you have faith. You know, you know who God is. Um, I, I, I would like to. I wish I could as well. And uh, uh, this was somebody who uh, himself uh, was born and raised in the Soviet Union and uh, immigrated to the United States of America. And, and he says, look, I was, I was raised with socialism. I was raised with secularism. There's no God. It's hard for me to get back to it. And I, I believe that it probably is. I was waiting for him to ask me if there's any way to do so. And I would have referred him to last week's uh, podcast because therein I spoke about taking the first steps in, and again, it's not for everybody. It's somebody who doesn't want to do it. You don't have to do it. Believe me, I'm not trying to make anyone religious. I really, I, it's not as if I have a, a sort of journal that I check off all the people. Oh, great, he's religious because of me. And so when I go to heaven, I go to my creator and I say, oh, by the way, you know, before you write me off as a complete scallywag, uh, let me just show you. Look, here are all the people I'm, I brought to you. No, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way at all. Uh, really, really not. It's it's no skin off my nose, as they say, whatever you choose to do. Uh, I'm really only uh, here, and this whole show is only here, uh, to bring you uh, data that's useful for you, ways in which you can improve the quality of your life in every significant dimension. If you want to learn to play better tennis, I'm sorry, not me. You want to learn how to groom your poodle, not me. You want to learn how to ballroom dance, I should say, not me. But uh, in the areas that really matter, your five Fs, your faith, your family, your finances, your friendship, your fitness, those are the areas in which I don't think you will find very many better guides, if I say so myself. Not because I'm so effective or I'm so, well, I am effective, but I'm not brilliant. It's because I have source material that is not of my own creation, but source material that has sustained the people of Israel for thousands of years. And what's more, brought them conspicuous success as they thrive in every time and in every place. And so that's why I said, 
for those of you who are interested in exploring it, you might say, you know what, I, I've never been religious or, you know, my grandparents were religious, but, I, you know, it's not for me. I've always thought this was part of a primitive world. I don't really need it. But the more that time goes by, the, the smarter and older I get, I'm beginning to ask myself whether there isn't anything missing in my life. How terrible could it be if I explore a relationship with God? And I took you last time through the beginnings of that. And uh, that, um, uh, that was an exercise in last week's podcast. Since then, I have been, if I say inundated, I mean compared, we know we get a very steady flow of wonderful mail from listeners all around the world. But uh, this past week has been uh, exceptionally heavy with a lot of people asking, I'm ready for the next step. Now, this is very exciting for me because this means that I was actually talking to a lot of you who heard me say, you know, um, why not explore this idea of a connection? Now, it's not a, a simple thing. Um, you know, you have to know what you're doing, and that's what I did last week. So you may want to review that, make sure you're going through it. And uh, people have been contacting me to say, okay, I'm ready for the next session. Well, maybe you are, maybe you're not. Uh, maybe you need to sort of redo that and, and do it more than once. The exercise I gave you last week, you might need to do that. And um, next week, God willing, my plan for next week's podcast, not this week's, but next week's podcast is to provide further information on the next step. In other words, going to step two in this exciting adventure into the exploration of whether a connection with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is, in fact, for you, or maybe not. The second question that people have been asking me this week is uh, whether I am filled with gloom and hopelessness or, or whether uh, I have any lingering optimism at all after the uh, uh, really three main events, I think. One of them, of course, is the way that the government reacted to the coronavirus during 2020. The second was the way the government failed to act towards the rioting, destruction, and looting of the middle of 2020, uh, reaching a height during the summer. And then uh, finally, the uh, events of the so-called invasion of the capital uh, taking place in the first half of January. And uh, again, the reaction of government and media to all of that. So in the face of all that, uh, of those three things, is there really any ground for optimism? And the answer is absolutely yes. And I want to devote the rest of today's show uh, to an explanation of why it is that regardless of where you live, you may be a citizen of the United States of America, you might be living or working or studying in the United States of America, but you might also be in one of any of the many, many countries that I now know we have enthusiastic and numerous listeners in, countries in Africa, uh, countries throughout Europe, countries in Asia. And uh, please know that I appreciate and I think of each and every one of you. And for that reason, I do not 
any longer. It's been a few years now. I don't do shows for the most part that are of exclusive interest to people in the United States of America. I talk about permanent principles and timeless truths that are relevant to you and all the orbits of your life that uh, apply no matter where you are. And so I will be talking a little bit about the context of England and uh, America's history, but um, the application of all this, you will see, will apply very much to your life wherever you are. That is what this show is all about. We're going to take a look at something that uh, I am powerfully passionate about. And I'm going to be speaking, I'll be honest, I'm going to be speaking from my belly rather than from my brain. And what I'm going to be telling you about will emanate from my innards rather than my intellect. It's going to spring from great gusts of my gut rather than from the calm currents of my cranium. I want to talk about the Bible. And in doing so, I want to make certain that you know that I am aware that many of our listeners are not necessarily Bible enthusiasts. And so I want to tell you that it really doesn't matter. Wherever you personally stand on the spectrum, from devout Bible believer all the way to atheist, as long as you are open-minded, and as long as you are willing to sail with me across the vast vistas of space and time, looking at the history of Western civilization, or as I prefer to just call it, civilization, and, uh, and look at the impact in different countries, um, I think we'll have a, a pretty good journey together. What I'm going to start off with is by showing you that no matter where you stand on who created the Bible, one thing I think we can all agree is on what the Bible has actually created. The the story could begin in so many different places, folks, um, and I sat and thought about this for quite a long time today. I mean, it's been on my mind for about a week and a half as I've been planning what I wanted to share with you, but I sat down today to try and think, where should we begin? And I think I want to begin with the case that the world hates America. And I, I think you'll agree that there is an extraordinary, uh, there, there is a special dislike for America that you feel in other countries of the world. Uh, you'll see it at the United Nations. If you've ever had the opportunity to watch any of the proceedings of the General Assembly, um, y- you, can, you don't actually only have to look at the body language of the various delegates, you can actually listen to what they say. 
there is a very strong antipathy towards the United States of America, as there is to Israel. And I thought a good place to start might be to explore the similarities. And indeed there are. Is it possible that the exactly the same reason that the world hates Israel is exactly the same reason that the world pretty much hates America as well? Could it be that there are similarities here that go way deeper than contemporary geopolitics? Similarities that lie at the, at the very foundations of the structure of the United States of America and of Israel. Is it possible that that great, wonderful 19, uh, no, not 19, no, 18th century historian, um, his name was um, uh, James, excuse me, William Leckie. He was an Irish historian, but uh, a wonderful historian with, with very readable work. But um, he said in the 1800s, did I say the 18? No, the 1800s, 19th century. Um, he wrote then, Hebraic mortar cemented the foundations of American democracy. Wow. Hebraic mortar cemented the foundations of American democracy. What could he mean? Or how about... How about the uh, fantastic colonial pastor is a wonderful man called Abiel Abbott, A-W-B-O-T. His writings are fantastic. You, listen, you can read his sermons. And uh, he gave a Thanksgiving sermon in 1799, which I quote so often, as a matter of fact, um, it's at the bottom of my personal stationery. Um, and I, I'm, I'm going to give you the whole quote I just part of it on my stationery, but uh, here's what he said in 1799, Abiel Abbott. In Hebrew, we'd call him Aviel Abbott, and I think I've pointed out in the past that uh, the V and the B in Hebrew are the same letter, and so um, uh, in Hebrew, Jacob's name ends with a V, Yaakov. In, in English, we call it Jacob. Uh, in Hebrew, Avraham. Avraham, with a V, in English, Abraham. A perfectly natural uh, transposition because B and V in Hebrew are exactly the same. So Abiel Abbott uh, would actually have known that his name was Aviel Abbott, which means uh, God is my father. Aviel, my father, Ael, God. Abiel Abbott, and in 1799, this is the sermon he delivered on Thanksgiving Day, um, it has been often remarked that the people of the United States come nearer to a parallel with ancient Israel than any other nation upon the globe. Hence, our American Israel is a term frequently used, and our common consent follows it apt and proper. All right. So, it's not an accident that there are only two nations who began, who launched into existence 
uh, with without a land. They hadn't yet got their land. One was ancient Israel, and the other was America. The concept of America was already apparent before they even got off the Mayflower, where John Winthrop spoke about the city upon a city on the hill, quoting from the book of Isaiah. And uh, later on, years later, of course, Ronald Reagan spoke about the shining city upon the hill. Uh, all of this was back in Winthrop's day in the 17th century, was before there was a country yet, but he had a vision of what it was to be. And uh, not only that, but in both cases, a somewhat persecuted people crossed an ocean, experienced an arduous and grueling journey to their promised land. Ancient Israel crossed the Red Sea and struggled through the desert, arriving in Israel, and of course the pilgrims crossing the Atlantic to escape the persecution of their faith back in the United Kingdom and to establish a land of religious freedom here in America. It is also interesting that Ancient Israel and modern America are the only countries to have both experienced a bloody and horrific civil war early in their history, a civil war on moral issues, a civil war that pitted the north against the south. That's right, the north of Israel and the south of Israel and the north of America and the south of America. Yes, and only two nations that emerged from these unique civil wars, stronger than they were at the beginning. These are two nations that are founded on ideas, not real estate. You don't have to be born on the territory of the United States of America to become an American, and you don't have to be born on a little speck of land the size of New Jersey on the shores of the Mediterranean in order to become a part of Israel. It's really rather remarkable. The similarities are very strong. Two nations founded on immigration, on people coming in. The Bible says, from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west, from the four corners of the world, I will gather them in. And sure enough, you only have to step onto the streets of any major American city to see that there is hardly a corner of the world that is not represented by people living now on the land of the United States of America. That's really something. These similarities are significant and, and rather powerful. But wait, there's more, much more. You see, when Ronald Reagan called America a great shining city on a hill, he was evoking to anybody who knew American history at the time, he was evoking what John Winthrop said sailing for Boston in 1630. And he anticipated a new community that would be as a city upon a hill. And of course, referring to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, 
and to the book of Micah, chapter 4, verse 2, and the, ver- the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, verse 18, um, these, th- th- this imagery was seized directly from the pages of Scripture. Um, it's, it's really, really rather remarkable. Uh, but here is something that is very striking, and uh, it was something that was brought to my attention by David Galanter, in uh, professor at Yale, who asked a very good question, and uh, I, I was I was intrigued. Here's the question. I think it's a question that each and every one of you uh, will identify with right away. And by the way, it's a question I think you would enjoy sharing with family members, sharing with friends. And the question is, what on earth made the early Americans so confident that this was actually going to be successful? This was, this was going to be a remarkable, special, unique kind of country. I mean, my goodness, they were having trouble feeding themselves that first winter. Some of them died, and yet they never wavered in their conviction that they were doing something remarkable and special and something that was going to become powerful. And uh, what made them sure? Isn't it weird? How, what made them think that America would become a light unto the nations? That's right, a shining city on the hill. Remember what John Adams said in 1765? Listen to this. John Adams says, I always consider the settlement of America with reverence and wonder as the opening of a grand scene and design in Providence. Excuse me? 1765? There's not even a United States yet. You've got a a group of isolated colonies with tremendous problems, enmity from local Indians, and all, I mean, never mind, problems with England. This whole enterprise stood a far greater chance of being wiped out than it stood of succeeding. What made them so sure? Revealing how the world really works. Thanks for being with us as we continue looking at, well, basically the Bible, and uh, it's a very special show for me because the fact is that although in shows we've discussed business and finance, we've discussed relationships, we've spent a lot of time on male-female relationships, and uh, and we've spent time on politics, um, including to the displeasure of, of some of you, and, and you've been so nice to, to write. Um, by the way, I, I mentioned that you can reach me Uh, at my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and there's a place there that says contact us, and you can, uh, in fact, contact us. And I I love hearing from listeners to this show, and I thank the many of you who do write. Uh, I get uh, a bunch of letters regularly. I do read them all, and many of you have discovered that I actually respond personally to a whole bunch of them as well. I really do have a uh, a special feeling of, of kinship, a special a bond that I feel between me and those people who listen to this particular show uh, because I've always preferred the medium of radio to television. Now, as it turns out, uh, we do, my wife and I, Susan and I, do a television show, and you can see it at www.tct.tv, not com, 
TV. Got it? You go www.tct.tv. And uh, the show's called Ancient Jewish Wisdom. So if you go to the on-demand section of the tct.tv website and you uh, look for the on-demand and then you look for Ancient Jewish Wisdom, you'll see um, as many episodes of of our TV shows you'd like. Now, I happen to enjoy that very much, but uh, there's a reason for that, and that is that uh, the only person who interrupts me is my wife. And when she does, it's pretty much because I deserve it and I needed to be interrupted. I'll tell you just between you and me, that's the truth. But uh, ordinarily, when uh, I do interviews on T, and I've been on Fox many times and I've been on CNN, uh, you know, you you get a soundbite. You get a very short space of time to answer. And as you know already, look, I'm not going to deny, if you want to say I'm long-winded, uh, I hope you won't, but but. If you say that, fine. I don't think it's long-windedness. I hope it isn't. It's just that uh, I don't oversimplify life. I don't pretend that the complexities and challenges of modern existence today can be uh, summarized and responded to with a simple slogan. No, uh, there are complexities, and I do you the honor and the respect of believing that I can give it to you in all its depth and in all its complexity. I don't have to simplify it. I don't have to prepackage it. And on television, that's not an option. Uh, You get interrupted very quickly. If you don't learn uh, early on, in fact, you'll just, you don't get invited back on shows if you, if you take too long to respond to questions. The presumption on television is that your attention span is very short. Uh, and I mean very short, literally. Uh, they want to see answers in, in 30 to 45 seconds, ideally, not longer than that. And I don't think that uh, television has only created a a sort of short-term medium, I think it's actually contributed to a short-term attention span among many of us here in the United States of America. And the proof for that in my book is that uh, in the Lappin family, we watch a lot of pre-1960 movies. When I say watch a lot, it's not as if you know, it's not as if we watch every day. But when we watch, uh, it's very rare for us to watch current and contemporary movies. Uh, every now and then it happens, but uh, with something particularly good. But for the most part, if we're going to watch a movie, we'll watch something pre nineteen sixty. And what's fascinating is that if you go back to movies, go back to Jimmy Stewart movies, go back to um, uh, Spencer Tracy movies, you go back a period of time and you'll see that shots can go on sometimes for two or three minutes. In other words, a shot meeting the cameras running continuously, not switching to another camera, not um, uh, not stopping and switching to somebody else talking or or different sorts of action, people had the attention span to be able to, to work with long shots. Today, watch contemporary movies, and it's very quick camera work very quick. The the shots move from one camera to another, back to another, the action, the movement. The human eye is drawn to movement. That's one of the reasons that uh, from the time you're a child playing hide-and-go-seek um, all the way to, uh, to a, a adults in special operations, they know that being absolutely stationary is crucial to not being spotted. 
the slightest movement can be perceived by the human eye and uh, this is uh, uh, this is uh, you know one of the reasons that people people learn this that you you really want to be very very stationary um if you don't want to be spotted and uh, being as the human eye is drawn uh, to movement the uh, creators of popular entertainment discovered a long time ago already that the more movement they can throw in the more addictive it becomes the harder it is for you to turn away and stop watching or do something else and so if you think you're being manipulated well you are there's no question about it and you're being manipulated by very fast and rapid movement which not only gets grabs and keeps your attention but it probably also contributes to um, a short attention span attention deficit uh, disorder in other words an inability to concentrate on one specific thing for a length of time and again if you write or or you do any work i mean for heaven's sake if you're if you're running a household if you're running a business whatever you're doing there are times where it really really pays you to make an appointment with yourself put it in on your calendar uh, block out the time, make sure there are no distractions, your phone isn't pinging or beeping, nobody's sending you messages, your email is off, and with no distractions, no sound, no radio on, no TV on, no nothing, just try and think your way through the most important problem you're facing. Have a pad of pencil, a pad of paper and a pencil or a pen next to you so you can just jot down thoughts as they occur to you, but do not allow your mind to be intruded upon by any thought alien to the problem under contemplation at that moment. You know what I'm saying? You're going to find it hard to begin with because you've probably had years of exposure to popular entertainment. But if, uh, if you try this and you do it regularly, first of all, everybody should because your problem-solving ability is enormously enhanced if you can just focus for a period of time. The answer very seldom comes in the first 30 seconds or the first 45 seconds, but uh, to be able to focus and to concentrate on something for 15 minutes, which isn't terribly long. I mean, we should be able to do much more than that, but you will find it incredibly hard to do it even for 15 minutes. And so if you're thinking of something that, uh, you know, you sometimes say to yourself, I really should improve myself on something, you know, what do I need work on? Take it from me, concentrating powers, focusing powers, staying attention-driven on one particular issue, one particular problem. You should do that, and you really will do uh, remarkably well. You'll find incredible benefits flowing from that. I can absolutely guarantee it. So uh, one of the things that makes this particular show so special to me um, is that I do have the time to lay out sometimes uh, complicated cases and often meticulous arguments uh, for your edutainment and uh, and, and you're good enough to, to give it a good listening to. And, and what's great about the medium is that you don't have to take it in a long, big slice. You know, you can listen to some of it today and then pause and come back to it tomorrow. And then, uh, you know, and, and I put a new one out every week. So 
It's essentially, it gives me a week to think about how I want to present certain things to you, and it gives you a week to to listen to it. And and that means that I don't have to um, cheat you. I don't have to cram too much material into too little too little time and leave you with uh, with a feeling of sort of not knowing what it is I'm talking about, which you may have anyway to my distress. I hope not. But um, at any rate, that's, that's one of the reasons that I so much enjoy uh, the opportunity of sharing time with you once a week on this show. And talking of the Bible, uh, there was a phrase which was very popular towards the end of World War II. Um, it gained most popularity when Winston Churchill used it in a speech he gave here in the United States uh, in March 1946. He gave it in Fulton, Missouri at a school there, and uh, today it's famously known as the Iron Curtain speech. Um, He had used it several times earlier in telegrams to President Truman. I think he might have used it in conversation with uh, President Roosevelt as well, uh, around about the time of Yalta. And there was much concern about what Stalin was doing to to Russia. And, of course, Stalin, the the cunning fox, uh, managed to to really uh, get almost everything he wanted out of Roosevelt and Churchill. And uh, in spite of the fact that promises were made to the contrary, uh, immediately following those closing days of World War II, millions and millions of people found themselves effectively enslaved in what became the Soviet Union. And so uh, Churchill referred to it as the Iron Curtain. And uh, it was a phrase that, uh, that existed. Where did it come from? Well, it was originally used in England much earlier in the century. And uh, it, it was a phrase Churchill, however, would have known from its biblical origin. That's right, biblical origin. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 4 Verse 3, and you shall take an iron pan and set it up as a wall or curtain of iron between you and the city. That terrific imagery, isn't it? A wall of iron. A wall of iron. And that became uh, the iron curtain. Um, how's uh, How's about our system of government? Would you be shocked to hear that the founders turned to the pages of Isaiah in order to determine, and again, think about it, there's no other country in the world that has exactly this structure. Three parts to government, right? An executive, a legislature, and a judiciary. A president, a congress, and a court. We're the only people who do that. Where did they get this idea from? How did they know that the process of government works best when divided into three, having one group as a lawmaking entity, having another group as the executive, the the boss, and another group as the, the court to decide? If it was so obvious, how come France, in all the, do you, do you know how many different, <laughs> uh, how many different attempts France has had at creating a viable functioning government since World War II? And not one of them came up with this. Italy, Yugoslavia, nobody came up with the idea of three parts to government. Well, how did we get it? 
Well, all you got to do is scoot over to uh, Isaiah and the book of Isaiah chapter 33 verse 22 uh, reads as follows. Would you like to hear it in the Hebrew? I mean, I know I know, obviously the overwhelming majority of you don't know any Hebrew, but uh, there is music to the language. Every language has its own sounds. Uh, I wouldn't call uh, either German or Russian musical in any way, uh, Italian and, and French more so, but uh, Hebrew uh, very, very musical. So let me read the critical verse to you in uh, the Hebrew, and then I'll give it to you in English. Ki Hashem shoftenu, Hashem mechokenu, Hashem malkenu, hu yoshienu. Okay, that's beautiful. Here it comes. For the Lord is our judge. That's the judiciary. The Lord is our lawgiver. Hello, Congress. The Lord is our king, executive. He will save us. And the founders correctly interpreted that to mean that that's God's system of government which needs to be replicated by his children here on earth eager to build his kingdom. And so for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, okay, fine. We'll get a judiciary, we'll get a legislature, and we'll get an executive, in this case, a president. Very amazing. But yes, you see, the the reason this is valuable and important, I think, is because it's not really possible to understand what America is. You know, you remember when um, one of the presidents of this country recently was famously asked uh, whether he uh, thinks of American exceptionalism. Does he think of America is a special place, and he says, well, in the sense that French think their country is special and Germans think their country is special. No, nothing like that at all, Mr. President. Something entirely different is what we're talking about, a way in which America really is unique. And what makes it unique? Uh, fundamentally, what makes it unique is the, uh, uh, the tremendous relationship, the close connection or as the Irish historian William Leckie said, the mortar of our foundations was the Hebrew scriptures. And that, yes, absolutely, sure enough. So the question we, we left with in the last segment was that clearly the founders believed that America was on its way to becoming exceptional, to becoming a very special country that would be a light to the nations, a city upon the hill. Why did they know that? Why didn't they just think that they're settlers in a foreign land? You know, just like Spanish settlers came to many parts of the world, Portuguese settlers established uh, outposts and settlements in different parts of the world, and not a single one of them did a literature emerge indicating that the people who arrived in Goa or in Mozambique, the Portuguese who arrived in those places, thought to themselves, wow, this is going to be something special. No, they were there. They did. They, they established a little settlement. They never expected very much from it and never became very much. But in America, it was totally different. It was as if they were all absolutely certain of their destiny. How? What, what made these people so confident? 
it's not as if they were just guessing or hoping because the way they wrote and the way they spoke at the time indicated they knew they were at the beginning of something that was going to grow into something enormously important. In order to reveal how the world really works, it's necessary to talk candidly and frankly with utter disregard for the cowardice of political correctness. And that means that from time to time, I have to speak of things that uh, you don't hear spoken of in many other places. One of those things is the primacy of the Bible in American life. And I know and you know that we now live in times where uh, a teacher believes that it's as much as their job is worth to open a Bible in a classroom. And indeed, in many school districts, that probably would be true. On the college campus, do students know anything at all about the Bible? I think you would be astonished at how little. Some of the the recent polling um, on this topic, uh, Pew did some of it, and the the Bible Advocacy Project did some of it, and it's it's kind of interesting, honestly. Uh, I got to tell you that most of, overwhelming majority of American university students. That, I mean, the American university student is the heir of Aristotle and Plato. The American university student is the heir of Bach and Beethoven. The American university student, the heir of John Winthrop and William Bradford and Cotton Mather. They literally do not know if Leviticus is a book or an aftershave lotion. As a matter of fact, you can walk around the area of Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. You can walk around the area of Harvard University in um, um, Cambridge, Massachusetts. These two universities were created as Bible schools. Yes, they really were. They were created as Bible schools. And today you will find the heirs of Bach and Beethoven in both those schools banging bongo drums, bringing alive the sounds of the jungle, glorifying in the rhythm of primitivism. I mean, that's what's going on. That's the reality. They know nothing at all about this book. And so... uh, it's the the campaign to de-biblicize America, the campaign to strip Christianity out of the out of the country, and I'd say to strip Judaism as well, accepting that Judaism is a sort of protected species in America, uh, for the most part still. Uh, there's not that much of an attack on Jewish values because uh, people have been conditioned by uh, the bulldogs of the Jewish defense agencies, the Anti-Defamation League, to name one, uh, that literally see uh, anti-Semitism lurking under every bush. And again, I mean, obviously, if your entire uh, organizational raison d'etre, the, the whole reason your organization exists, um, is in order to spot and uh, defeat anti-Jewish defamation, uh, then obviously you're going to see a whole lot of it, right? In the same way that to a hammer, almost everything looks like a nail. And uh, I, I do understand that. But 
what has unquestionably been a determined campaign for decades already has been to strip Bible-believing, serious Christianity out of the United States of America. And uh, it's so important because I happen to believe with utter, total conviction that the only hope our country has, the only hope our children and our grandchildren have of living lives of prosperity and tranquility in the United States of America, the only hope for this troubled land is, frankly, a religious revival driven by Bible-believing Christians. And so those of you who are listening, and, and I don't actually know, I, I, I don't think I have any way of knowing really what proportion of you uh, are Bible-believing people who take the Bible seriously, how many of you are atheists who don't but just find the uh, the show interesting. And obviously, I welcome you both very much indeed. Uh, I'm, I'm perhaps even in greater awe of the latter just because there must be a lot of things I say that are hard for you to take. I understand that. But uh, for the show to have any value whatsoever, uh, I have to speak honestly and candidly. Uh, in other words, I have to call a spade a spade. Now, look, that's not what you're going to get uh, everywhere else. Uh, I am under no illusions. I'm unimpeded by false modesty. Uh, generally speaking, in a lot of places, particularly if it is of a political nature, if you are listening to a politician speak, um, his way of saying spade, he doesn't call a spade a spade. What does he say? Well, he might say something like, uh, a spade is a, a one-person operated, a manually controlled, foot-powered implement um, of simple but robust, uh, yet adequately efficacious lignometallic composition designated primarily, though by no means exclusively, for utilization by hourly paid operatives deployed in the agricultural, horticultural, or constructional trades or industries, as the case may be, for purposes of carrying out such excavational tasks and duties. Um, as may from time to time be designated by supervisory grades. That is what a politician calls a spade. I call it a spade. And uh, that is why I, uh, I, I do say things that I know that, uh, that, that many of you have trouble with. And one of them is the, the idea that the Bible created America. I cannot put it any more simply or any more directly. How did people know so certainly that this country was destined to become a city on the hill, a light to the nations, something to be emulated around the world that would become an irresistible magnet to people around the world? And I told you about uh, what John Adams said in 1765, I always consider the settlement of America with reverence and wonder as the opening of a grand scene and design in Providence. Um, 1862, by the way, middle of the devastating Civil War, says Abraham Lincoln that America, this is the last best hope on earth. Those were his words, the last best hope on earth. How did he know that? 
Maybe, I mean, if an angel would have shown up and said, Abraham Lincoln, say your prayers because you are going to be presiding over the end of this grand adventure and this great experiment, uh, it's going to start petering out and winding down, and people are going to start shipping back to Europe where they came from. And please, my friends, don't for one moment think that this would have been a preposterous outcome. You know, right now, thousands of people are drowning in the attempt to get from Africa to Europe. Many are making it. Why are they trying to leave Africa with such desperation? Because is is there something wrong with the soil of Africa? Does Africa not grow food? Is there something wrong with the rain and the weather? No. Africa is, is a very fertile place other than the Sahara Desert section. But what ails Africa is social and cultural structure. That is what produces wealth. It's not just minerals in the ground. Africa has no shortage of gold and platinum and diamonds and uh, cobalt and nickel. All the valuable minerals are all there in Africa. People are flocking away from Africa because there is no social, civic, organizational, cultural structure. So do you really think it would have been so impossible in the aftermath of the Civil War for there to be total collapse everywhere? You know, the Civil War would drag on and drag on to uncertain conclusion. The government might fall. There'd be other attempts to form governments. The Constitution would be forgotten. How long do you think it would be before people started climbing on ships and going back to the relative tranquility of France or Germany or England? We're talking about 1862, right? Lincoln, under those conditions where it really would have been easy to imagine the end of America. And he says, this is the last best hope on earth. He didn't say, unless we succeed, things are going to go downhill. Or if we succeed, this will be the last. No, it wasn't a question for him. It's pretty amazing. Where does it come from and how did it happen? Very simple. The answer is that uh, they read the Bible whether it was John Winthrop back in the 1600s or John Adams in the 1700s or Lincoln, all of them, they saw America's story in the Bible. They read about the covenant between God and Israel, and to them, they were Israel. Do you understand what I'm saying? John Winthrop said it in these exact words, we are entered into covenant with him for this work. We, and he continued, we shall find that the God of Israel is among us. That was one of the founders of our country speaking. And that is how they knew. In the same way that they saw that the story of Israel was going to continue eternally, it was not coming to an end, so they saw the story of America, which they felt was being brought under the same covenant as the covenant between God and Israel. It's pretty amazing stuff. And so Lincoln spoke about God's almost chosen people, and it made sense to him because the Bible told them not only what was, but what would be. And they recognized 
that the eternity of the Bible, the eternity of its values, the eternity of God's covenant had been adopted by the founders and by the population of America. This is a big and special thing. And what we have to do is understand where that came from. You know, Lincoln, okay, fine, but he didn't just come up with those terms. And in 1765, John Adams didn't just come up with these terms. And how about John Winthrop? What about him? Was he just coming up with this as well by himself? Not at all. Not at all. And um, in, um, in, uh, in, uh, in the early 1600s, when he came along with all the others from England, they brought something with them in the same way that when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and came to the land of Israel, they brought with them nothing but a book, nothing but a book. In the same way, the, pure, the pilgrims arrived in, the United, in what became the United States They didn't have wealth, they didn't have tools, they didn't have gold, they didn't have money. They brought a book. The book was the Bible. Who were these remarkable people who got onto a ship, not a very safe one either, not a very comfortable one, and after a perilous, terribly uncomfortable journey, they arrive in their promised land. My goodness. And this is embedded, do you know, it, it's 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 interesting, but the LDS Church, I mean, they did something similar. Their journey to Utah, and again, with utter confidence that this was going to become a success, and it did. One of the books that I very much enjoy reading and going back to, and as a matter of fact, uh, some of you asked me at a speech I gave recently in Nashville uh, what books I recommend for you to actually read aloud from in order to improve your ability to articulate and to articulate and to improve your fluency. And this actually is not a bad series of books either. It's a series of books by G.K. Chesterton, and um, they are the Father Brown stories. Father Brown is this wonderful Catholic priest, um, very insightful, very smart, and uh, a little bit like um, the the priests that would be played sometimes. You remember the Bing Crosby movies and and uh, and uh, Spencer Tracy. There were times where they played like Boys Town. Time they played uh, Catholic priests. They were they were just so good at what they did. Uh, they were the sort of people that uh, even even as an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, I, I would easily see myself uh, discussing a, uh, a, a puzzling or a challenging um, situation with them because and and by the way, um, there are there are people that and I'm, I'm wondering if I should mention his name, but there's a, um, a Jesuit priest, there's two of them actually. Uh, with with whom I discuss matters and and derive uh, valuable valuable insights, uh, the um, the Father Brown was a priest like that, and he uh, he he solves mysteries, and each mystery is solved with such a, a flourish and with such deft understanding of human nature. So uh, 
you know, I'm I'm cautious about recommending books other than my own um, for fear of wasting your time. But uh, if you are into, if you feel like something in the fictional line that is uplifting and at the same time is uh, written in, in excellent English, you'll enjoy G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown series. Anyways, at the in one particular story, um, there's a, a, a doctor who's who's sort of at the beginning of the story. I mean, later on he, he comes to recognize what a great man Father Brown is. But in at the beginning, he's got a very typical patronizing attitude towards religion and uh, particularly towards Father Brown, the priest. And uh, here's what the doctor says. I'm afraid I'm a practical man, said the doctor with gruff humor, and I don't bother much about religion and philosophy. You'll never be a practical man until you do, said Father Brown. Very insightful and very true, very core to what we're talking about here. A lot of people make the mistake of assuming that there's the real practical world, uh, the real practical world that uh, men of action are involved in, and then you've got religion, which is sort of otherworldly, and it's and it's uh, the province of people who are disconnected from reality and operate in in a, a little spiritual vacuum of their own. And nothing could be further from the truth. And G.K. Chesterton, putting words into the mouth of Father Brown, had it exactly right. You will never be much of an effective practical man um, if you don't have time for religion and philosophy, very much so. And that's really very much what I'm discussing in today's show, which is the um, question not of who created the Bible, but what the Bible created. And perhaps the most, one of the most significant creations of the Bible is the United States of America. And I said, where did it come from? You know, in the 1600s, you had uh, John Winthrop and you had uh, William Bradford, all of whom spoke like Old Testament prophets. And you had uh, um, uh, John Adams later on, and you had all the way to Ronald Reagan and, and, uh, and, and actually George W. Bush to some extent, not his dad. But um, you had them all somehow aware of the biblical significance. Ronald Reagan was, I think, the last person to speak with uplifting, biblically-based oratory. But uh, uh, where did all this come from? I did uh, the people who came across on the Mayflower just come up with it, and that somehow implanted it in American soil? Not at all. That's not the case at all. Um, do you remember uh, recently a in one of the shows in the last few weeks, I was trying to explain how people in positions of enormous power seldom have to go on the record instructing underlings to do unpleasant but necessary tasks. All they have to do is uh, express the desire for those things to happen, uh, and there will always be aggressive and ambitious underlings who will seize the cudgels and do what needs to be done. And I spoke about all of that in the context of some of the extremely disturbing and more than suspicious uh, things that happened in the Clinton White House. And I, I said, you will search in vain for any Clinton-specific fingerprints 
on any of these things, as I explained. Uh, however, uh, the idea that some of the very unsavory characters, uh, such as Craig Livingston, who was hired by um, by Hillary Clinton in spite of her subsequent denials when it became clear that he was a former bar bouncer and thug um, who uh, had committed some dreadful things in the White House having to do with FBI files and uh, blackmail and tarnishing people. Um, All of these things, uh, you know, you will not find President Clinton's fingerprints on them, although I do think you will find Hillary Clinton's fingerprints on many of them. But uh, the president would never, ever have had to say, do this or get rid of this or deal with that. People just knew what he wanted. He made his wishes clear, and people acted accordingly. And I I spoke about it in the context of um, the uh, murder of Thomas Beckett, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the uh, late 1100s. And the king at the time, the king of England, was Henry II. And uh, Henry II, who ruled from 1154 to 1189, I think it was, um, he uh, was uh, trying to uh, establish royal power. I mean, he was very effective, by the way, and 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 many of the things that he did laid the foundation for what we know of as the United Kingdom today in terms of Wales and Scotland. I mean, those used to be in the 1100s talking about warring, warring fiefdoms. I mean, it was it was a pretty wild time in the late 12th century, but. Um, uh, he wanted to establish supreme power. It was a slightly awkward situation, right? Because England is is obviously part of Catholicism, which in the 1100s was what Christianity was, and uh, and uh, at the same time, of course, the king was the head of the church as well. It was called the Church of England. I I don't remember when the name the Church of England came into being. I'm sorry, I, I just don't remember that. But um, uh, but it was it was the the church of of the nation and Henry II was the head, but the church also existed and the Archbishop of Canterbury was the titular head of the church and in this case it was um, uh, Thomas Becket and uh, and Thomas Becket opposed uh, the seizing of power. Henry was usurping some of the power of the church and uh, and Thomas Becket as a representative of the Pope in Rome. Uh, quite rightly insisted that that is not acceptable. Unfortunately, the Pope at the time was not a a courageous man and didn't back up Beckett fully. And as a result, um, uh, Henry II uttered the the fateful words. And to be honest, nobody knows exactly, precisely what the words are, but um, there was enough of a contemporary uh, account that we have a very good general idea, but it was something along the lines of him sort of rubbing his chin, gazing off into space in the presence of three of his knights, and saying quite clearly, Oh, who would rid me of this troublesome priest? Well, it didn't take those three guys long to head over to the cathedral and uh, where they um, uh, assassinated and murdered viciously and brutally uh, Thomas Beckett. 
And um, time time went on, and uh, later on, Hen, one of Henry's descendants, right? This was Henry II. And meanwhile, you've got uh, Scotland and Wales. Oh, and Ireland getting in on the act and becoming um, more and more part of uh, of of this empire, and uh, and finally you get uh, a guy called Henry the Eighth, and Henry the Eighth uh, reigns from the very early fifteen hundreds, um, uh, like fifteen eight, fifteen nine, fifteen ten, somewhere in the first decade of the sixteenth century, and he reigns to almost fifteen fifty, somewhere there. So say the fifth, the first fifty years, for, first forty or fifty years of the, uh, of yeah probably forty years is more accurate of the fifteen uh, hundreds of the sixteenth century, and uh, Henry the Eighth is married to Catherine of Aragon, who is um, his wife. There was an, a, a political deal. There was all kinds of stuff going on with uh, France and Spain at the time. Uh, lots of turbulence, as you can imagine. And um, he decided it was enough of Catherine of Aragon. He wanted to marry Anne Boleyn. And uh, again, of course, you know, Catholic Church. But, of course, we're talking about the beginning of the 1500s. And what's happening now is Martin Luther is launching the Protestant Reformation. It's kind of early. And uh, it's just beginning. Henry is... uh, trying again to establish the authority of the church. He wants supreme authority, and in fact, he's trying to get documents signed by all the uh, all the various other centers of power, landowners, uh, aristocrats. Um, and interestingly enough, by the way, there are no there is no business, uh, center of power yet. You know what I mean? Like, like today in in the United States of America, uh, business is a very significant force. And make no mistake, uh, the government does everything it can to collapse all other areas of power. Uh, the suppression of Christianity in America. And yes, I use the word suppression. That might be an overly strong word, but like I told you at the beginning, I'm calling a spade a spade, and. Uh, and to the point where today it is very, very difficult for a practicing and and uh, fervent Christian to get an academic slot in any major American university. Uh, American professors at American universities are open about the fact that they would not hire an evangelical Christian, no matter how strong his academic credentials were. This is open stuff, by the way, reported in the New York Times uh, quite recently in um, anyway I, I won't uh, I won't go too far into that for the moment it'll be a topic of another show but uh, at least for now uh, you know being aware that this is not an unusual set of circumstances where a government wants to concentrate power and so it does everything possible to diminish other areas of power in America that would be business and the church and 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 Christianity all of those just as Henry VIII was doing in uh, the the 1500s. Um, And he was being opposed by another great Thomas at the time. In this case, his name was Thomas More. And eventually, uh, because Henry VIII wanted to divorce, and again, Catholic Church, divorce especially for a monarch was problematic, uh, Henry basically became part 
of the Reformation, breaking away from the Catholic Church and forming the Church of England, its own special, its own church. And um, that meant that uh, he had to get rid of Thomas uh, More, which he did. He had a trial, a fake trial. There wasn't enough evidence. Thomas More uh, was was vindicated, tried again. Eventually, he got him, and uh, Thomas More, with great dignity, was executed. And um, he actually, even you know, his 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 body is actually buried somewhere official, not not Westminster Abbey, but maybe near the Tower of London. I'm not sure, but um, people knew who he was. People knew who Henry VIII was, and uh, this was a um, quite a special and important guy. And uh, and uh, and meanwhile, okay, what else is going on is kind of interesting. Because corresponding to this whole period, um, you've got the emerging of the Reformation. But that in itself isn't the beginning. The beginning starts a little before that. Uh, with the, the beginning, I actually think that we probably have to go back. Oh, my. I think we have to go back to the 1300s. So we're going to go back to even before Henry VIII, between Henry II and Henry VIII, we're going to go back to uh, the third, late 1300s, and I'm going to tell you perhaps where the start of the story really is. Anybody listening to this podcast on a, on a regular basis, you're a happy warrior. Uh, you're somebody who is spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming. And uh, the truth is that ultimately that life-affirming conviction that is part of the credo of the happy warrior um, can triumph over those who promote an infinitely satanic abyss. And that's really where we're at in the country right now. My, my goal in this particular show is to reveal the the timeless truth of the Torah and uh, to as much as possible avoid uh, anything that that is a lie I want to tell it exactly as it is and um, you know you know what a politician says if you ask if if something he said was a lie he says well it depends on the definition of a lie and if you ask well what do you think the definition of a lie is he'd say something like this well a lie um in as much as the precise correlation between the information communicated and the facts in so far as they can be determined and demonstrated is such as to cause um, epistemological problems of sufficient magnitude so as to lay upon the logical and semantic resources of the English language a heavier burden than they can reasonably be expected to bear. Well, at the end of that, you don't even remember what you are asking him about. It's all over. On to the next question. So that's just a tip for aspiring politicians. Um, That's how to handle that kind of thing. And uh, my goal here is in telling the truth that America uh, was founded on biblical foundations, essentially that America is the creation of the Bible, uh, built by deep and passionate believers in the Bible as the Word of God. And, um, and, And that is something that, again, regardless of where you stand on the spectrum between fervent believer and atheist, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that that is something you can relate to, that 
even though you yourself may not uh, believe in any way whatsoever, the fact that the people who built this country did is frightfully important. And to me, it's personally important because I really hope for a powerful, passionate Christian revival, uh, a, a real religious renewal. And, uh, you know, I think we've had uh, two of those in the past in America. Uh, the first one really drove the, the War of Independence, which was was absolutely fueled by the sermons from colonial churches, from the pulpits of those churches. And the second uh, religious revival was, of course, uh, what brought around the abolition of slavery, again, driven primarily by deeply believing Christians. <coughs> and my conviction is that for uh, the country to move forward, and for us to uh, have a bright future, there really needs to be another great revival. And uh, only the, the, the believers in the Bible will have the fuel to bring that about. And so uh, to whatever extent I can contribute to that, that's what I'm doing. And if uh, and you, you know I generally ask you to bring this show to the attention of others, but particularly today on this show, uh, if there are people who are already predisposed to see themselves as happy warriors, to see themselves as people who deeply desire to do what they can to save the country and want to do so not necessarily exclusively in the realm of politics, but would like to do so in terms of a vast, meaningful spiritual revival upon which foundation political sanity can return— then please do expose them to the show if you don't mind. If you think it would be useful to them, it would be valuable. At any rate, to whatever extent I can be useful in helping to bring that about, I can assure you that is what I, what I wanted to do. So, um, so I said we, we go back a little bit earlier, and uh, we need to quickly visit in, um, uh, in the middle 1300s. There's a guy called John Wycliffe. Okay, who um, is is causing quite a little disturbance because he's he's going on and on about how important the Bible is. But meanwhile, at that point, still, okay, it, England is is religiously under Rome, and and there is a whole theological debate about whether Scripture should be the determining factor in a man or a woman's relationship with God, or whether it should be um, the theological doctrine that comes from the church. Now, uh, I'll, I'll say straight away at the outset, that's a very big oversimplification, okay? Um, so, you know, for, for people who are deeply immersed in the history of this period, I understand that there's much more to the debate than that. But I want to keep moving because I want to uh, make sure that this show wraps up this overall picture of the the role of the Bible in America in the story in the ongoing and future past and future story of America, and so uh, uh, so up till that point, of course, okay, talking about thirteen hundreds, nobody has a Bible, 
Don't forget Johann Gutenberg invents the printing press in 1450, middle of the 15th century. And um, up till that point, a Bible, I mean, only the the clerics, the churches, very wealthy people, but nobody had a Bible. Meanwhile, um, John Wycliffe is translating it into English. It doesn't even exist in English, right? It's in Hebrew, it's in Greek, it's in Latin. In other words, the the language of scholars. But the notion that ordinary people can draw inspiration and that ordinary people in the Bible can find the key to connect them to God, unheard of. uh, John Wycliffe starts uh, translating it, and um, uh, it's it's, it's sort of a premonition of what is going to happen a hundred years later. But uh, Wycliffe dies in 1384 and uh, pretty much had translated the Bible into English. But you understand that that means that uh, there are a few copies of it, right, laboriously handwritten. Um, A few years after he dies, his translation gets banned by the government, by the king, uh, King Richard II, I think that would be. And... um, um, and then, by the way, the folks, and we're talking about England now, folks who who were with him and supported him, um, many were burnt alive, uh, and people sort of hung Bibles around their necks and burnt them at the stake. This is no joke. That's how antagonistic everyone was to the notion of biblical access for everybody, right? I mean, and as you can imagine, you know, England at this point is, well, um, you know, pretty undeveloped, pretty wild. Uh, it's really um, seething, turbulent maelstroms were swirling around the foundations of society. I mean, it was crazy times. Anyways, uh, comes the uh, 1500s, and everything's changed now because a guy called Tyndale, uh, was it William? I think it's William Tyndale, um, goes ahead and starts working on the translation and wants to produce an a contemporary Bible in the language that people can read and understand. And um, even then, all right, early 1500s, he had to flee the country. That's how emphatic the authorities were against biblical access for everybody. He has to flee the country, goes to Europe. And uh, nonetheless, I got to tell you, they pronounced him a heretic right, because of what he was doing, making, it's amazing, right, you can be a heretic for making the Bible accessible, but yes, that's how it was in the 1500s, and um, he gets executed, can you believe it? But meanwhile, uh, 50 years earlier, there's a printing press that's invented, and the very first book printed by Johann Gutenberg, not the Vienna Telephone Directory, but the Bible, in fact, in the Library of Congress, there is one of uh, the few rare copies extant of a Gutenberg Bible. Anyways, um, Henry VIII, at this point, who you'll remember is the guy who uh, executed uh, Thomas More because Thomas More wouldn't let him divorce uh, Catherine of Aragon. Uh, Henry VIII, he's still in the story, and he's like mad at Tyndale. He's really angry that there's an English translation of the Bible. And uh, and by the way, even uh, Thomas More, who Henry executed, even Thomas More opposed, right? Thomas More was obviously a, a loyal Catholic, and the, the, the official position was absolutely no translation of the Bible. Couldn't happen. So um, uh, time goes by, and out comes something called the Geneva Bible, 
okay, and that was published uh, 1560. All right, so we're moving along, and then finally we get the King James Bible, which was published. Uh, published by uh, King James I. He got about 40 or 50 scholars, and they produced an absolute masterpiece, the King James Bible, uh, published in 1611. And um, and before very long, uh, what does the Bible do? And again, I want you to understand the power of this book. This book produces the English Revolution, right? The Civil War in England, which brings Oliver Cromwell to power. I mean, and I mean, this is like a very big deal, very big, and um, and and there was all the struggle between those people who felt sort of newly liberated by their free access to the Bible. It, the books were available now because of printing. The translation was available because of the Geneva Bible people, the King James Bible, the uh, Tyndale Bible. It's and and things are really in in turmoil here. Um, and uh, James the first was was uh, was so down on the group of people who began to call themselves Puritans, or, or maybe other. I don't know if they called themselves that, but but um, these were uh, people who were part of the Church of England, but um, they, uh, they 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 were different. They were were Bible centric. That's what the Puritans were. And uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth at the time was, was sort of okay about them, but James, absolutely not, although he had produced a Bible because he realized there was no putting that genie back in the bottle. Nonetheless, he, uh, he was really down on them, and many of them also had to flee the country. Um, as you can imagine, the, um, uh, the 1500s come, then we come to the, the 1600s, and the middle of the 1600s is a civil war, largely between Parliament and the Puritans on the one hand, who believe in the openness and the freedom that comes from the Bible, every man, and where does this come from? It comes from the basic idea. And they, again, they got it from Hebraic sources that uh, in the Bible, unlike any other religious work, all human beings are descended from Adam. And it's, you know, these are the generations of Adam. And ancient Jewish wisdom says that's to tell us that no human being is better than any other human being. We are all descended from the same person. And uh, this then becomes part of their belief. And so you've got the king and much of the aristocracy trying to hang on to their power. And you've got the Puritans and Parliament saying, no, there's got to be power to the people as well. It's got to be shared. It's, we're not your serfs. We're not your peasants. We're not your slaves. And, and so uh, that becomes the great um, English uh, Civil War, and Oliver Cromwell, for a period of time, is uh, a leader, and Oliver Cromwell is a, a Bible-believing guy. And, uh, and again, much more turmoil after him. I don't want to spend too much time on, on the English history part of it, but um, I want to stress just how central the Bible is to the development of English history. That's what's going on. This is all about the Bible, and um, and uh, and and it's creating a group of people who are being persecuted, who finally are going to get on ships and they're going to leave the country. They're going to go to Holland where they're welcome, and then eventually they're going to go to the New World. And what are they going to bring with them? These beliefs 
and these deep convictions that the Bible is everything and their deep knowledge and familiarity with this most majestic and mysterious of volumes. All of that is what opens up the story of what happens in North America. We are in the mid-1600s in England, and uh, and you've, you've got the Puritans, and together with Parliament, essentially rebelling against King Charles I and the aristocrats and the church, of course, the Church of England. And um, uh, out of this, of course, comes Oliver Cromwell, who is um, totally Bible-centric. Uh, during the war, during the battle, he's famous for sometimes stopping in the middle of a battle and having all the soldiers recite psalms. Uh, he also wanted to follow uh, the pattern of uh, Gideon in the Bible and make sure that all his soldiers were morally pure and um, and upright. I mean, he could not have been more biblical. It was really just a remarkable time. And uh, and then at the same time, meanwhile, you got some other interesting things going on. Not on the military battlefield. Not on the not in the court of King Charles. But uh, what you have are philosophers and thinkers. Primarily, you got four people I want to I want to talk about. One of them is um, Isaac Newton, who is actually born uh, just about the time that the the Civil War is beginning. Um, so he he sort of lives a little bit after that time. Isaac Newton, known for his laws of motion, his uh, his masterwork in Latin Principia Mathematica, the principles of mathematics, and uh, altogether a an amazing guy. Well, what people don't always realize is that Isaac Newton uh, wrote far more on biblical matters than he did on mathematics. Uh, he had a lot of writing, a lot of calculations on the temple and on the tabernacle. Again, a very Bible-centric guy. And uh, then you had um, people like John Selden. Okay, John Selden was a leading jurist of the area, uh, of the era. The, the Everything that today is British law, and as I'll show you, American law as well, had its roots in the work of John Selden. John Selden lived uh, 1584 until 1654, so he, he was an old man uh, at the time of the uh, English Civil War. But uh, his work um, was... I mean, the the whole reason that British marriage law moved away from the Catholic idea um, to the Jewish idea of, namely, divorce being allowed was because of John Selden, who knew Hebrew. And, and if you read his stuff, it's all of it. He's clearly, he speaks, he bases it on various verses um, and tremendously Bible-centric. Um, so much so that... Um, he and Hugo Grotius, who was sort of his counterpart in Holland at the time, uh, both of them worked on laws of uh, international sovereignty and um, and laws of the ocean. And uh, you'll see, like, John Selden takes his quotes from early in Genesis, where uh, it speaks about the various nations on their various islands, and then later in Exodus, where the children of Israel... Um, are told by uh, 
the king of the Amorites, for instance, that they can't come through his land. And so Selden draws conclusions from this having to do with sovereignty and boundary law and so on, uh, which then becomes British law and finds its way into American law. The founders all studied these guys. I mean, these were their gurus. They were their teachers. Uh, Thomas Hobbes is another one. Okay, Thomas Hobbes lives uh, 1588 to 1679. Remember the um, the Civil War was 1640 to 1641, 42 to 1651 approximately. Uh, again, middle of the 1600s. So um, Thomas Hobbes is right. Thomas Hobbes writes the Leviathan. Where does he get the Leviathan from? Uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, Book of Job, and elsewhere. There's basically this powerful. Uh, insatiable monster is the Leviathan, which he means, of course, is the state, the government. And uh, and again, much of the approach of the founders to writing the Constitution and the whole idea of, of, of government comes from uh, the writings of John Selden, Thomas Hobbes, and of course, finally, John Locke. Uh, John Locke lived 1632 to 1704. So John Locke is um, is is like 20 years old when John Selden dies. But these guys all knew each other and studied each other. And uh, John Locke lives till 1704. Again, uh, you know, 1770s, you've got the American founders studying and trying to master and understand these guys. And it's it's really very amazing. I mean, the extent to which the uh, um, the extent to which they shaped, never mind England, but America. Now, I, I will tell you this: that you can go into some American colleges or universities and tell them about all of this, and they'll say, "Oh no, no, you're you're completely wrong." So there was a German school of thought. Um, and the, the prime exponents were, and I'm only telling you this because you're probably going to run into it if, if you pursue this any further. Um, there were two German philosophers, Kant and Hegel. And their writings, you can't imagine how much of their writings, like these guys were obsessed. All they were trying to do was persuade you that, um, that scripture had absolutely nothing to do with anything. Um, and it, it's crazy, of course, because... If, you know, you look at the extemporaneous writings and you'll see people are actually quoting from the Bible. It's not, this is not me, your rabbi, imagining what I think I see in there. I'm just telling you what they say. And uh, and if anybody on sort of with a university background challenges you on some of the biblical origins of British law and American law and our whole civic structure, all you got to do is ask them one question, okay? Here it is. Hey, how come, and and I know this is true, how come you only studied the first half of Hobbes' Leviathan? Why didn't you do the second half? And while, while we're at it, why did you only study the second half of John Locke's two treatises on government? Why didn't you do the first as well? And you know what the answer is? They may not know the answer because they never looked in the other parts of those books. The answer is very simple. And that is because the second half of Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan is all about the Bible. And um, the first half of John Locke's two treatises on government is all about the Bible. And so they leave those out when they cover these in uh, in American universities for the most part. But that's, that's what we're dealing with. So... Um, 
uh, as late as um, seven, early 1700s, uh, a book of Psalms is published in England. And um, and this David Galunter pointed this out to me in um, uh, in this British book of Psalms, all the references to Israel were replaced by the words Great Britain. So, in other words, uh, they see the destiny of Great Britain this being the same as the destiny of Israel, just as the founders and early Americans saw the destiny of the United States being the eternal destiny of Israel. Um, the composer. Uh, George Frederick Handel, uh, became English, but of course he was from Europe, came and lived in London, and he wanted to make money, right? He wanted people to come to his uh, to his musical performances, to his operas. So how did he, he do it? What, is, uh, what did he do? Well, because at that time, British people were really, really Bible-centric, take a look at the operas that Handel did. Right? He, wasn't, he didn't write these for Sunday school. He didn't write these to try and evangelize anybody. He wrote them to make money. He wanted to be sure people would come to the performances. So what did he write? Esther, based on the book of Esther. Deborah, the, uh, the prophetess Deborah from the Bible. Judah Maccabee, the story of Hanukkah. Joshua, that was another one. Susanna, Jephthah. And finally, Israel in Egypt. I mean, these are all biblical operas he did because he wanted the British people to come, and he knew this is what would bring them in. So it's it's really very, very interesting. Uh, so you've got England totally saturated uh, with the Bible, and and now you've got large numbers of people, starting with the, the, the Puritans and and, uh, and and many, many others, starting to head to the New World, uh, to get away from the trouble in uh, in the United Kingdom, it wasn't called the United Kingdom yet, and so um, you had a bunch of settlers um, coming to Jamestown in Virginia. That was 1607. Uh, the Pilgrims come to the to come on the Mayflower to Plymouth in 1620. Um, they come to Boston and Salem ten years later, and um, and what they were trying to do. And I mean, they're historians who note this. Uh, the, from their writings, you can see they were trying to establish a holy commonwealth standing in a national covenant with its Lord. <laughs> it's incredible, absolutely incredible. Uh, the the early settlers also founded um, two colleges to provide them with pastors and theologians. You know what they are? Harvard and Yale. Right, that was in the uh, early sixteen, early to mid sixteen hundreds. Harvard and Yale. Not surprisingly, you'll know that the uh, crest of Yale has Hebrew writing on it. Um, anyway, there's much more. There's there's much more than than time will allow on on this material. But uh, I just I want you to know that uh, that that's where America came from. Uh, they came here in search of religious freedom. And um, and you'll see. I mean, some of the writing is spectacular. I saw uh, somebody somebody who joined the Pilgrims in 1623 writes, "Blessed God for the opportunity of freedom and liberty to enjoy the ordinances of God in purity among His peoples." I mean, this this sounds like it's writings of the Old Testament, but it isn't. These are the people who founded America. Uh, Okay, I've quoted you many, many times William Bradford, who wrote History of the Plymouth Plantation and in the 1600s. And um, 
he here's some words from that. Listen to this. Um, so he says uh, they make camp near where they la- where they landed on the shore in Ma- on the Massachusetts mainland, and he says there was no reason to think they could do better elsewhere. Uh, and he says, because after all, they could not, as it were, go to the top of Pisgah to view from this wilderness a more goodly country. And the amazing thing is that he didn't even have to write what that reference means, because anybody reading it back then knew that Pisgah was the mountain God took Moses up onto to look at the, the land of Israel that he'd never enter. And so Deuteronomy chapter 34 tells that story. But uh, uh, William Bradford, who became a second governor of the colony, never found it necessary to even mention that, obviously, just because he knew that everybody would know it. And uh, and so the, the thing you've got to know very, very clearly is that these early Americans saw themselves as Israelites, um, really throwing off the yoke of the tyrant, and the uh, they saw themselves as as part of 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 ancient Israel. They were they were that. It's not a, an accident that uh, a committee of the Continental Congress, uh, made up of John Adams, Ben Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson, and I've spoken about this before, uh, were asked to produce a seal for the 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 new country. And the proposed seal that they've got. Um, shows Israel crossing the Red Sea, and the motto underneath it reads, Rebellion to kings is obedience to God. Uh, and, and again, that's in the records. You can actually see that. And so this is really um, what it was. I mean, and, and presidents up till relatively recently saw themselves as, uh, as, as part of this and connected. Um, Lincoln was a very biblical president. Um, he he probably, historians think he probably had the most biblical knowledge of all the, the presidents. And, uh, and obviously he turned to it again and again, particularly during the war. And uh, although Lincoln never joined a church, um, he often said, and I've seen this in his writing, he said he would join one if the Savior's summary of the gospel were its only creed. So he basically wanted a pure pure church. That's what he wanted. Um, uh, Truman was biblical, um, obviously all the way up to Reagan, and that's kind of where the, the tremendously strong biblical awareness probably began to fade, I suspect. But, uh, but anyway, that's... That, that is the main part. That's the main um, aspect of what it is, I think, that we need to know. And um, and that means that um, uh, that this, this book, which brought forth the nation of the United States of America, is also the book that obviously, therefore, has the ability to restore it in exactly the same way that if you have a factory shop manual for a car, that's a really useful book. If you are working on a car and you're trying to restore it or rebuild it, you get the original shop manual. Well, the original shop manual that built America is the Bible, and that shop manual is probably the most useful book for us to have available for the rebuilding. And uh, I, I do, I do hope and pray for a, uh, a third great religious reawakening, and um, and I, I do think that as much information, as much biblical information as possible, 
um, needs to be made available and needs to be spread. And above all, we need to counteract the the uh, the the dreadful lie that somehow or another we are violating the rights of people by teaching the Bible or by bringing it out. Um, all I can say is please don't be so worried about offending people. You know, sometimes if somebody gets offended, it's not your fault, it's their fault. Now, if you actually did or said something offensive, you owe an apology, fair enough. But just because I speak about the Bible, and I've often had people say to me, well, I'm offended by, well, that just may be your tooth and skin. I haven't done anything to offend you. Now, if you, you know, the very fact that you feel offended in no way on its own indicts me. We got to see what I did. But if I didn't do anything to cause the offense, then your feeling offended is your problem, not mine. Uh, a friend of mine who flies for Alaska Airlines um, told me that, um, and if, if any of you fly, I mean, I used to fly Alaska a whole lot. And until relatively recently, with every meal, they gave out a little card with a verse from the book of Psalms on. Uh, on it, and I appreciate it. I collected them. I honestly, I probably have, I don't know, maybe 50 of them. Um, and I still, I saw them the other day in my closet. Uh, little colorful cards showing the, the ocean and the skies, and then a verse of Psalms. And um, he says, a woman who was clearly Jewish came up to him, poked her finger in his face, and said, I don't appreciate you forcing your religion down my throat. And uh, he smiled and he said, lady, when I last checked, the book of Psalms was written by a Jewish fellow called David. And the, the poor lady huffed and puffed. She didn't know what to say. But she'd been so indoctrinated by this idea that religion is offensive and you're stepping on people's rights. We've got to get rid of that. And uh, we have to, I believe, we have to just restore confidence in the Bible. And you know what? Wherever you stand, as I said, wherever you stand on that spectrum of religiosity, all the way from fervent to atheist, um, the fact remains is that a, a healthy, vibrant America, like we used to have, is in everybody's interests. Um, it's really far more important that we have an America that that functions with uh, with with effectiveness militarily and economically and socially. Much more important than it is that uh, that men who want to dress up like women can go into a woman's bathroom. Much more important that the the basic fundamentals of society are repaired and restored, and that is most effectively, I believe, done with exactly the same powerful force that built it in the first place, namely the Bible. And uh, it's it's through the the reintroduction of of these fundamental spiritual forces that I believe that the spontaneous surgings of spiritual regeneration can take place. I, I really do. Many of you ask me repeatedly, how do I get access to more of your teaching? How do I get everything? Particularly if for reasons of distance and geography or for any other reasons, I don't want to arrange to have boxes and boxes of books and audio programs and video. I don't want to have all this shipped to me. I live in another country or I travel or whatever it is. I still would like to get access to everything. And so what we did is we essentially digitized everything. And it's called our digital download library pack. 
And um, this includes, uh, for instance, uh, Our America's Real War. Well, it includes that in ebook. It includes hours and hours and hours more of our Genesis journeys of the um, clash of destiny between Israel and Islam. Uh, the details of Noah and the flood. What was really going on there? Did abortion really have a lot to do with it? And who are the giants? Yeah, that's called the gathering storm, decoding the secrets of Noah. And marriage secrets from Eden. That's two hours of lecturing along with study guides. And, um, and, and there's just so much of this material that I've created over the years. We wanted to make sure there was a way to get hold of it for people who do not want to worry about the physical things. They don't want a library full of CDs and a library shelf full of stuff like that. They just want to be able to have it all in digital form. And yes, now is the time to go for it. There's especially a price reduction. I mean, let me give you an idea of, of what, it, what it includes. We have 10 hours of video instruction where I teach 10 separate video lessons on financial prosperity. It's called the Financial Prosperity Collection. And for people who are not crazy about working their way through books like Thou Shall Prosper, 10 Commandments for Making Money, and Business Secrets from the Bible, 40 success strategies for financial abundance. Uh, there's so much material that has changed the lives of literally now hundreds of thousands of people all around the world. And of course, most people over the years have bought this in physical products, you know, books and CDs and DVDs and, and you know, stuff has come through the mail or with the various courier delivery options. And, and those options still exist. But for many people, people are thinking seriously about sort of moving into the digital era and enjoy the convenience of not actually having to schlep the stuff around with you all the time, but still having it available and being able to access it whenever you need, whenever you have some downtime, you're on a journey, uh, you're on a plane, you're on a bus, how about you're exercising, you're walking your dog, and you can just plug in those earbuds and um, go ahead, continue uh, participating in this program of self-development, advancing your interests in the area of your family, your marriage, in the area of interacting with your children, the area and what to do if you don't have happen to have reached that stage yet. What to do if uh, you're dealing with grandchildren? What to do? What to do with finances and all the areas that includes your social relationships, particularly at a time of uh, a governmental restriction of social interaction. All of these things are covered in, as I say, hours and hours of audio and video and and uh, visual material in our digital download library pack. So head over to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, would you? Uh, now, you can also get there by uh, going to youneedarabbi.com, depending what lodges itself more securely in your memory, rabbidaniellappin.com or youneedarabbi.com. Head over to the store and read about the price reduction. It's an exciting opportunity for you to get everything, 
in digital form, the digital download library pack. And uh, it's something that I would want you to have and I would want the ability to bring that to you through this program. So uh, go ahead and enjoy that. And then remember, as I said at the beginning of the show, next week I'm going to um, take us one step further down the journey of spiritually relating to our Creator for those of you who are trying out that exercise and um, so much more as we spend time together, an opportunity that you know I regard as a privilege and which I cherish here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show every week. But it's as far as we're going this week, and so I want to wish you a week of really good times with your 5F renewal, with your finances, with your friendships, with your family, with your faith, and with your physical fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.